0: You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our
1: world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host,
0: Greg LeBlanc.
1: Welcome to Unsiloed, this is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Andrew Lee, who is a member of the Australian parliament and former professor at ANU in Australia, and also the author of many books, Battlers and Billionaires, Choosing Openness, Economics of Just About Everything, and Randomistas, which came out a couple years back. You have a new book, Reconnected, and maybe we'll have a chance to talk about that, but you're the first person I've interviewed who has successfully made the transition from academia to politics, maybe one type of politics to another type of politics, and so I'm gonna have to ask you about what that's like and whether you would recommend this as a path for other academics. First, let's get started talking about this book, Randomistas. You're an economist, and in economics we have our theorists, and we have our empiricists, we have our experimentalists, and then there's this whole new generation of economists who are doing what we might think of as as field experiments luckily the nobel prize committee gave it some attention and some love just recently
0: i was pretty influenced by my thesis advisor christopher jenks greg and he was somebody who had worked with daniel patrick moynihan when moynihan was in the senate and moynihan was fond of quoting rossi's law the idea that the measured effect of any social program Goes towards zero the better you measure it. And from that, I don't take any sense of pessimism about our ability to change the world. I just think we ought to regard tackling problems such as long term joblessness as being as difficult as tackling health challenges like cancer or HIV. And we need to approach them not with blind ideology, but with scientific rigour, discarding theories, but not losing any of our passion to solve these big social problems. So, to the extent that I have a big social policy idea, it's randomization, and and the more I got into it, the more I realized that there were some great stories to be told, not just in social policy, but in crime, development, education, and even business.
1: Yeah, I couldn't tell whether the book was an optimistic one or a pessimistic one, because just like in medicine, right, I mean, medicine is a story of great progress, but progress was sort of built on the backs of discrediting quite a few bad ideas along the way. Do you see the proliferation of experimentation as being largely discrediting these failed policies and bad ideas or do you see it largely as a source of tremendous progress and the discovery of new impactful policies and ideas?
0: I think those of us who are in policy or research should never become too attracted to particular programs. We should be passionate about the ends, but scientific and critical about the means. And then you can achieve great things. So when I was born in the early 1970s, about 35% of the people in the world died of infectious diseases. Now, even with COVID, that's down to about 15% of deaths, fewer deaths in absolute terms from infectious diseases than in the early 1970s. Part of that is sanitation, but a huge part is antibiotics and vaccines, which have been tested through uh, critical scientific means, Now, we're seeing the COVID vaccines still being updated, tests taking place, but all of that taking place in a framework in which no one is too attached to a particular solution and the best of us are attached to finding out what works best. So it's that what works philosophy that I I think can help to change not just medicine, but social policy, philanthropy and business too. We all think of medicine
1: as being the domain in which the RCT has really shown its merit and taken off over the last couple centuries and you begin the book with a description of how the idea of an RCT has diffused through medicine and of course in today's world when everyone is saying follow the science I think what that really means is, is paying careful attention to experimental results and yet in that story you talk about how there was a study done on scurvy and it took 50-60 years for the results to be diffused and so that story to me is, is I mean, it's, it's a bit disturbing, right? It shows that even if you have the ability to discover what works and what doesn't work, there are still tremendous forces that get in the way of diffusing these, these insights. Do you see similar things in policy? What is the resistance to the use of experimentation, or at least resistance to the results that we get from this experimentation?
0: Yeah, so the story of James Lynn's scurvy experiment really is an interesting one because... The experiment itself is incredibly powerful, 12 sailors, two apiece to each of six treatments. Very clearly those given citrus do better than those given other treatments like vinegar or seawater. But Lind doesn't really understand the processes, and in his write-up, there's a lot of bogus science, basically hocus-pocus around why citrus works. So it's not perhaps that unreasonable that others don't buy his results and that it takes that half century before it's fully adopted. As a result of it being adopted, suddenly it's possible for sailing ships to make the journey all the way from Britain to a far-flung place like Australia, But for uh, the British managing to sort out scurvy before other nations, perhaps I'd be having this conversation with you in French today. But it did take longer than it should have done. And I see that in in programs such as Scared Straight, a program which was inspired by a 1978 Academy Award documentary in which young people were exposed to a day in jail and scared back onto a, a life of obedience. Low-quality evaluation suggested that it worked, but when the randomistas came in, they found not only that it didn't work, but that it was counterproductive. And yet, scared straight just kept on popping up. And even now, mm-hmm. you get people who say, well, maybe that'd be a good idea to reduce youth offending. Well, in theory, yes. In practice, absolutely not. It's interesting that you say
1: that about diffusion of scurvy knowledge, that it was kind of lacking a fundamental theory that may help to make sense of it. Because it seems like, at least in the world of data science, We don't care. In data science, the underlying mechanism is not really of concern. When Google discovers that one shade of blue works better than another shade of blue, they don't really spend too much time trying to figure out what it is that's special about that blue. They just go forward with what works. That seems to be what's fundamentally different about data science as opposed to the more scientific approach where you want to publish papers and and you want to demonstrate the statistical significance of the predictor and so forth. And also explain the underlying mechanism. Shouldn't we, all we care about is whether it works or not? Do we need to have that story that helps us understand it? Because I kind of think that you can fabricate a story that explains anything, right?
0: So it does depend who we is, but I think if we as researchers, then absolutely our goal should be to understand the world in a deep sense and to test theories as to how the world operates. Fundamentally for a large firm like Google, they might even be in that business too. So yes, A short-term bump in sales might eventuate from figuring out what the best shade of blue is. But Google might actually be able to do more for its profits by delving into the question of why a particular shade of blue does better. Is it to do with the calming influence that it has? If that's the case, some users feeling a little stressed by the site, and might other design features make them feel a little calmer as well? So I think the best randomistas are now moving away from whether a particular tweak works or not, to how do we understand the world. And the great thing about randomized trials, unlike natural experiments, is that you can design the experiment very precisely to test the theory. So you can have two interventions tailored to assess a particular theory, whether that's a theory in psychology, in business, in medicine, or wherever else you're doing the testing.
1: At the beginning of the book, you also quote Angus Deaton, who used this term randomista sort of critically. And Mm. I think that was sort of the basis of his criticism was that If you're narrowly focused on what works and what doesn't work, then you miss the opportunity to discover the underlying mechanisms. Was that the fundamental nature of his critique?
0: Absolutely. And look, I'm a huge Deaton fan, but I think that some of the criticisms that have been made of randomized trials could just as easily be made of any other form of evaluation. So when people say it doesn't generalize, well... That's true of a before-after evaluation or a natural experiment, or indeed a qualitative analysis. When people say that the program might be a boutique program, which may not work in a more scaled-down environment, well, that's also true of a pilot without a control group. And so many of these critiques are critiques of valuation itself, rather than critiques of the randomisters. Not everything can be evaluated through randomized trials. You know, I don't think we're going to test the impact of denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula, or. Or, uh, changes in interest rates using randomised trials, but a lot more could be evaluated using this technology.
1: Right, and you point to another some other examples of where institutions or individuals have resisted experimentation. You talk about Semmelweis and the mortality rates of childbearing mothers in hospitals in Vienna, you know, very very famous example. And I like how you connect that really to the Hippo principle. So in my work with companies, I mean, this is sort of the big problem is Hippo principle and opening up these leaders to being wrong. It seems like a human tendency to want to resist any kind of disconfirming evidence regardless of how, where it comes from.
0: Yeah, well the hippo is the most dangerous animal in Africa and the HIPPO principle, the highest paid personal opinion, person's opinion, is often one of the most dangerous things in uh, policy or business. Where we're deferring to someone because of their status rather than because of their evidence, we can end up putting in place systems, not only where people get it wrong, but also where we decrease the incentives to try new things and do experiment. So the best business leaders are those who have that maxim in God we trust, everyone else bring data.
1: hmm So how would you respond to? The famous parachute study argument in the BMJ that you reference, where no one's ever done a clinical trial on the efficacy of parachutes, and it doesn't seem like a very good idea to do one. This seems to be something that's pretty obvious. Why would we want to test something that seems so obvious?
0: Well, It's certainly true we've never had a control group who had to jump out of planes without parachutes, but that doesn't mean that parachutists' lives haven't been saved as a result of randomized trials. We've got randomized trials on the impact of ankle braces on paratroopers, which have found that they make a big difference towards parachuters injury rates. We can often tweak a policy using a randomised trial rather than have a treatment group that gets the program and a control group that doesn't. And frankly, this is often what we're doing in medicine. Very frequently in medicine, a new pharmaceutical is being tested, not against a control group where the patients are getting nothing, but against a control group in which the patients are getting the best current alternative. And so that's the way in which a lot of social policy evaluation can effectively happen. And sometimes we need to recognise that's what's going on in our natural experiments. So a series of studies which had looked at the impact of Head Start and found more modest effects than they had assumed, realized afterwards that what was going on is that the control group weren't having their kids sitting in windowless rooms, but in fact, many of the kids in the control group were going into alternative early childhood programs. So really, you were testing Head Start against the alternative early childhood programs rather than testing Head Start against no professional care. In the world of policy, where have the successes been? You point about a couple examples, for
1: instance, in the state of California, back when Arnold Schwarzenegger was governor, there was evidence, there was a clinical trial and some policies where the results were clearly unimpressive, and yet there was a push to maintain the policies. Where has this sort of experimentation been successful? The nudge unit in the UK is famous, and I think it's famous for increasing tax compliance by 3% by using this type of Wording and having this color of envelope that goes out. So, a lot of people would be cynical and say that these are very, very small improvements. Where have we seen the biggest improvements in the area of policy?
0: That Arnold Schwarzenegger example, I think, is a great one of politics trumping science, where the after school program was clearly shown to be increasing youth delinquency. And yet, Schwarzenegger, through his uh, personal charm, was able to uh, persuade Congress to continue funding the program. But we've seen a lot out of little tweaks put in place for the nudge units, and importantly, initiatives which have shown that randomised trials don't need to cost millions and take decades, but Mm -hmm. actually can cost tens or hundreds of thousands and take days, weeks or even minutes. The subtitle to my book was chosen through a randomised trial on Google in which I took all of the suggestions of mine and my editors I put them up there as Google Ads and we picked the one that got the greatest click-through rate. But we've also seen huge advances in development economics where for years it's been pretty faddish. You know, you had the infrastructure fad and then demography fad. And now I think people are increasingly realizing that scientifically testing ideas such as whether or not bed nets have a higher take-up rate mm-hmm. if people pay for them than if they get them for free, it can have a huge impact on saving lives. We're bed netting Africa now with free bed nets as a direct result of that randomized trial that showed that people were equally likely to use a free bed net and that the stories of people using free bed nets to catch fish were in fact apocryphal.
1: Mm-hmm. And so some of the critics of these types of experiments would argue that the control group is being deprived of some kind of potentially valuable intervention. How would you respond to that? If, for instance, you're trying to test surgery, you think surgery is effective and, and someone comes along and says, oh, I don't think this surgery is effective. And so the proposal is to give half the people a, uh, a sham surgery. Those people who are getting the sham surgery, if they knew they were getting sham surgery, they would be highly disappointed. They don't feel like being experimental subjects. In fact, even the pushback on Facebook, when it was discovered that Facebook was doing experiments on people, people felt highly manipulated. How do you respond? I think in the commercial environment is one way to respond, but in the medical and the policy environment, I think it raises bigger issues.
0: It does, and a great question. Two things in there, one is consent, and one is the validity of running an experiment in which the control group doesn't get the, the treatment. I think we all always need informed consent, and that's important not just for individual studies, but for the integrity of the whole research process. In the case of Facebook, asking people to opt in to a panel in which they know that they're going to be part of experiments, perhaps with some modest reward for being part of that, or just the kudos, is an important part of consent. In the case of surgical randomized trials, they've been very controversial. Some of those who have long advocated treatments such as knee arthroscopies were outraged when randomized trials conducted in Sweden showed that surgery had no improvement compared to slicing somebody open, playing some easy listening music, and Mm -hmm. then sewing them back up again. But it's really important that we know these things. And indeed, the number of programs which have been shown to perform no better than control group in surgery is as high as it is in other fields of medicine.
1: When I tell my students that they're being part of an experiment, an educational experiment, I get a lot of pushback. Nobody wants to be part of an experiment, even if it's in the service of discovering what works. I think everyone would like to enjoy the fruits of these experiments, but people don't like to participate in them.
0: That's interesting, because in psychology, uh, there's been a, a norm where you will uh, not only ask students to participate, but often require them to participate for course credit. One of the critiques that's been made of many psychology studies is that what we're learning about isn't behaviour in the general population, it's behaviour among psychology undergrads. But if you're rolling out a program in the general population, one way of dealing with this challenge is to think about a staggered rollout in which the group that gets it second is the control group for the first period. One of the most famous randomised trials in development is the uh, Progressor Program, which then became Opportunidades in uh, Mexico, a conditional cash transfer program which encouraged people in low-income Mexican villages to send their kids to school. The government couldn't roll it out in all 500 villages in the first year, so they rolled it out in half the villages in the first year and then they had a a one-year randomised trial that produced such strong results that conditional cash transfers now exist in a couple of dozen countries around the world. Yeah. I mean, it seems like the easy answer to that question
1: is if you have a certain amount of resources that you can only use to deliver a certain amount of, of impact, just double the, the scope of the project and then randomize who you give it to. I think a lot of companies, a lot of governments miss the opportunity to make discoveries because they don't phase in the implementation of the policy. We actually had that here at my university where a decision was made to start adding interviews into the admissions process but there's only a limited amount of resources. They can only interview 10%, but rather than randomizing, they just took the middle slice Mm. and interviewed everyone in that very narrow middle slice, instead of doubling the width of the slice and randomizing it. And so at the end of the the process, we don't know whether it made a difference. And so we don't know whether to continue it or discontinue it. And so it wouldn't have cost any more to just double the size and randomize, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And particularly where you've got administrative data, or in in this case, your own university data. So it's not as though they needed to do a follow-up survey from that. They could follow the students in both groups and learn about the impact of the test. In some sense, you could have run an almost free randomized trial in that case.
1: And one of my other favorite studies is in, I think it was in Norway, where they randomized the rollout of mammograms. They randomized the sequence of counties in which they did the rollout to make sure that that have good quality data. And it doesn't cost any more to roll it out in a random fashion rather than you know, rolling it out in a fashion that's dictated by things like geography or or proximity or or something else.
0: And indeed, sometimes that can be useful for politicians. So when we uh, rolled out stimulus checks to households in the financial crisis of 2008, 2009, I managed to persuade the Australian government to take a list of zip codes, randomize that list, and then allocate the uh, payments just randomly down the list. And so we had a a short-term randomized trial of the impact of those cash payments on household spending. And the government quite liked that because it then meant that they couldn't be accused of any political favouritism in the rollout. It wasn't physically possible to get the uh, checks out to everyone in one go, and so a randomised approach seemed the fairest. Similarly, you see in terms of school lotteries or draft lotteries, governments looking to randomisation as a way of saying, well, ex-ante, this is the uh, fairest system we can imagine.
1: Companies like Netflix and Amazon and Google, they have very explicit and very conscious experimentation policies and they push out this experimental mindset into pretty much every part of the organization. Can you envision a day where where governments and universities would, would also have sort of a similar type of centralized or explicit or conscious approach to experimentation. So in other words, rather than, you know, a nudge unit that is thinking up experiments and then rolling them out, rather pretty much every part of the organization, anytime they're thinking of doing something, they could think about how they could do it in a way that creates knowledge in addition to whatever the intended results were.
0: Yeah, I talk in the book about Donald Campbell, who envisaged uh, what he called the experimenting society. And he talked about how such a society would not only produce better results, be more scientific in its approach, but also be more modest in its ability to tackle big challenges, more willing to try new things, because there was a, a yardstick against which new interventions can be measured. So I love that combination of modesty and scientific critical analysis. We see it very much in medicine now, so most advanced country governments wouldn't use taxpayer funds to support a new pharmaceutical that hadn't gone through a, a randomised clinical trial, and that's despite the fact that only about 1 in 10 drugs that look promising in the lab actually make it through stage one, two, three clinical trials and all the way to market. So, there's a high failure rate, but there's a system in place that tests those new pharmaceuticals we're seeing it a little bit more with the nudge units around things like tax administration, but we see it very little in some other areas. And that's true across medicine as well. So pharmaceuticals are doing a lot of randomized trials, surgeons much less. Areas like plastic surgery have, have barely come into the randomized <laughs> revolution, even although they're part of the medical profession.
1: Well, it seems like a lot of the outcome is going to depend on what your your null hypothesis is, right? So in the world of pharmaceuticals, you, you have to start with the assumption that it doesn't work and then you have to prove that it does work. In the world of policy, how would we approach that? Anytime someone makes a proposal to start doing something different, should we assume that the status quo is, is the thing that has to be dislodged? If we do hypothesis testing, then the burden of proof is really on anyone who's trying to do something new or should our existing practices and protocols be forced to go through some kind of testing?
0: I think it's pretty context-dependent. I'm a passionate randomist, but even I would have been pretty uncomfortable if we decided that household payments during the COVID lockdown only went to half the population so we could learn about what the impact was. I don't think that would have passed a reasonable ethics test. But there's a whole host of areas in which it's possible to small-scale randomised trials And to bring academics more into the policy realm, give academics the chance to better test their deep theories. And so we're building up a stronger picture of understanding the world. And that's the great thing about living in a world in which there is so much data around. The cost of follow-up surveys falls away when you're able to use those administrative data. All you need is the randomization of the interventions to be able to then just steadily increase your knowledge base. I'm wondering, does the burden of proof
1: depend on the domain? Presumably for lots of the pharmaceutical interventions that have been proposed around COVID, we've insisted on, on sort of a very high level of proof, but for a lot of our non-pharmaceutical interventions, policymakers are, are basically doing their best and making their best mm. guesses. And they're not saying, we're not going to mandate masks until we have definitive proof that they work. You know, we're not going to mandate social distancing until we have clinical trials on, on the interventions. In the heat of the moment, you have to make some decisions and then hopefully test the impact of those decisions. But if you don't bake in some kind of experimentation, how will we ever know whether those, those interventions have been effective?
0: Yeah, I agree about the value of Baking in the evaluations. And you can do that even when you're dealing with a situation in which people are dying. So you look at the rapid testing of COVID vaccines, that's been large scale, but not as large scale as the testing of the polio vaccine in the 1950s, which saw 600,000 American children being part of a a massive randomised trial to work out whether or not the vaccine had an impact. In the US military, uh, battlefield medicine has improved enormously. They're using now these forward response teams, which don't fully patch up the person, but look to stop enough of the bleeding to ensure that the wounded soldier will survive until they get to the next hospital. And the use of those teams, as I understand it, has been informed by randomized trials. So clearly, even in a situation in which people are dying around you, you're able to put in place randomized evaluations, which then save more lives in the future. So a couple of areas where you have expertise education policy and
1: crime policy. Could you talk a bit about what seems to work? And I know you have to contextualise it and some things work in some cultures and not not in others, but what have we learned in the area of of education and in in the area of crime that helps form your approach to these policies in Australia?
0: Well, certainly in the area of education, conditional cash transfers have been important. Most of that evidence is out of developing countries, but we're also getting more now for developed countries. We also have some pretty good evidence out of the Harlem Children's Zone in the, in the U.S. that a high expectations, high quality educational environment can make a big difference. So, you know, previously we would look to significant effects as being a 20th of a standard deviation, a 0.1 of a standard deviation, but they're producing results which are in the order of one standard deviation. Put another way for those... Viewers who don't think in terms of standard deviations, they're able to get the effective gains of closing the black-white test score gap in the US. So that should raise our level of ambition as to what can be done for interventions with vulnerable children. You then look at crime where interventions around cognitive behavioural therapy seem to be producing really promising results. Now, cognitive behavioural therapy is tailored to a situation in which a young man in a high-crime neighbourhood can't simply be told you should always fight or you should never fight. It's always got to be contextual. You need to be willing to put your fists up if somebody asks you for your uh, cell phone on the way home, because otherwise they'll ask you for your sneakers the next day. But if, when you're in the classroom and your teacher asks you to hand over the cell phone, then you don't want to put your fists up in that situation. So cognitive behavioral therapy, which teaches participants to slow down, pause, assess the situation, appears to have really, really promising gains. And some of that, it turns out, also uh, replicated among street kids in Africa. And
1: one of the policy discussions, you mentioned the philosophical approach, which apparently was the most cost effective of these approaches. And yet you didn't tell me what that was. I wanted to know, wait, what is this? This is a potential employment opportunity for my philosopher friends.
0: Yeah, indeed. This is a study which I went into teaching children a little bit of basic philosophy and providing them with that lens through which to view the world. And yeah, I think philosophy could do a lot more in terms of working out what are the key insights that can be brought into the classroom. There's a risk that our philosopher friends sometimes are doing too much angels on the head of a pin work and too little practical understanding the world and your place in it kind of work. Getting back to the issue of crime, I think you made the comment that
1: there's a lot of passion driven policy as opposed to results oriented policy. It seems like in order for you to run experiments, I mean, it's kind of pointless to run experiments if there isn't any kind of agreement over what the desired outcome is. Is passion-driven policy, is it a non-results-oriented approach or is it, is it simply that the passion is so strong that any information about results will simply be suppressed if it goes contrary to the view?
0: Yeah, I tend to think of it as a short-term approach, which is effectively saying, I, I want to hurt this person because they've hurt the community. And that may feel good in the moment, but almost everybody who is in prison today will be released in the future. So you want to think about what that prison environment is doing to reshape people in it. Even if your goal is punitive at the outset, you need to be thinking about rehabilitation because these citizens will uh, be all around you in the community in a decade's time. We have a fascinating randomised trial about the impact of prison from California in the early 1970s where 3,000 randomly selected prisoners were uh, let out of prison six months earlier. And the government then followed up to see what the recidivism rates were. And it turned out that lopping six months off your sentence had no impact on recidivism. It would have been useful if that study had informed the uh, subsequent rise of things like three strikes laws and mandatory sentences, which significantly increased the uh, U.S. prison population to an extent that I think every reasonable criminologist regards the U.S. as incarcerating to too high a level in order to get the optimal levels of crime. You also talk about development. I mean,
1: you mentioned already that development is an area where we've seen a lot of this experimentation. Is the focus on development in part due to the ease with which you can design these experiments and implement them in the developing environment and that they're less expensive or that it's easy to get funding or that the participants in the experiment are more willing to participate. You mentioned that the randomistas are really taking over development and that the, the hedgehogs or the big grand planners are, are kind of on their way out.
0: Now, I remember someone in one of my graduate seminars once making the observation that labor economics seems to have had a a better generation than IO, in part because we agreed on our techniques earlier on and we agreed on the outcomes, whereas IO had many more methodological and results disputes. And I think that probably also explains part of what's going on in development, where there was a a general consensus about the uh, goals that people aim to achieve, reduced mortality, higher living standards, more uh, quality-adjusted life years, and then they could move on to look at the methodology, uh, and quite quickly then uh, many turn to randomised trials. Clearly, the cost uh, makes it more feasible to get the sufficiently large sample sizes where you're able to see impacts. But it's also the real willingness of governments to work with researchers. So I think about Karthik mool work with the Andhra Pradesh government doing randomised trials on teacher incentive payments. You now he is working with massive infrastructure there with the willingness of the government to be willing to trial different approaches to teacher incentives and teach the whole world something about what works in that domain there was one experiment that you cited that i thought was really interesting
1: which was are people more willing to donate to causes that are more scientific in their approach and the results were interesting but it clearly shows that there are some people that are more about the warm glow, and others that are more about results. And I think the folks who run TOMS, the the shoe company, would fall more into the latter. You kind of hold them up as role models, I think, in this space. Tell us a bit about that experiment. It's kind of like a meta experiment, I guess.
0: Yeah, so Dean Cullen's experiment looks at whether or not having good experimental data makes a difference to donations. He finds on average it doesn't, although for rusted-on long-term donors, it does seem to make more of a positive difference. But That doesn't mean we shouldn't still be trying to improve the impact of interventions. And one of the uh, firms that's most impressive in that space is Tom's Shoes. Tom's was founded with the notion that if you bought a pair of shoes in an advanced country, somebody in a poor country would get a pair of shoes as well. So this wasn't corporate philanthropy bolted on. It was part of the model. And then after they'd been going for about a decade, they asked a team of researchers led by Bruce Weidek to evaluate using a randomised trial what happened when uh, Community received Tom's Shoes. And they found that, in general, those getting the shoes had other shoes beforehand, so they were upgrading the shoes rather than getting their first pair of shoes, that it didn't improve school attendance, and that it did increase a sense of dependency on outsiders. And Bruce has a a lovely uh, response to it, where he says, Many companies would have looked to bury that result, but TOMS didn't. They saw the result, they adapted, they moved from loafers to sneakers, they looked at ways of giving the shoes through the parents and the community and as as incentives for uh, school attendance, looking to improve their program rather than to attack the researchers. If TOMS can do that for an evaluation which really struck hard at the very heart of their model, then I think anybody else should be able to do the same with a result that makes them uncomfortable. Yeah, it's really remarkable. I've had some conversations about what's going on in the
1: world of ESG in corporate America, and there does seem to be some folks that are really just more interested in, in the PR and and the results that they can get from it and others that are really super curious about the impact that they're having. I wanted to ask you about politics because, look, you're in politics, you're a politician, and when we talk about getting elected, politicians have begun to think a lot more like the sellers of soap. I had a friend who was in politics and political marketing back in the 80s, and he went back and forth between selling politicians and cigarettes and liquor and soap, and he said, there really wasn't that much difference in how you did this, but it did seem to take a while for political activism to get some of the lessons of experimentation. I know some folks that worked in the Obama campaign in 2008, and the things that they were able to do just in terms of experimenting on voter turnout and messaging, it seemed like that politics had finally joined the party here. Is this like asking a rat about his maze in the cage, if I ask you a little bit about this? What have you learned? Have you been able to put any of this to use to help connect better with your constituents?
0: yeah it certainly informs the way in which we campaign and yeah I'm aware of the importance of making sure that when we're spending taxpayer dollars to communicate with people that we're doing that in the most effective way so one of the findings from the research is that letters don't seem to have very much of an impact so we're now doing telephone town halls to engage with people we also uh, are shaped by uh, randomized trials and thinking about something as simple as when to put out my uh, monthly email update so trying to to look at when that has the highest open rates, and send that to people at a time when it's, it's most convenient to them. We even ran randomised trials on a question such as, if I organise an event in Parliament House, are people more likely to attend if they're offered free snacks and drinks, or if there's no refreshments advertised? Spoiler alert, turns out people are equally likely to turn up if you don't tell them you're going to feed them in advance. So uh, we have fewer catered events now as a result, but there's all kinds of little ways in which you can uh, just tweak what you're doing. And for me, that's a part of staying fresh. We should always be looking to learn. I'm always asking colleagues about their ideas on better connecting with constituents, because we're in this world, Greg, of declining trust in politicians. And so it's incumbent on all of us in elected office to be thinking about how do we do better at connecting with the people who we represent? What are the platforms we can reach out through? What are the ways in which we can connect with people? I think the Cambridge Analytica scandal really highlighted how much more seriously people
1: take what we might call manipulation or experimentation in the political domain. People seem to be much less troubled by the idea that when they go to a casino that every single aspect of the environment is manipulated, or that when they go to a search bar that every aspect of the search bar is being manipulated. There seems to be some idea about politics, that politics is a domain that should be held to a higher standard, I guess, than other areas. Is this at once a problem and a good thing for the world of politics? Could it hold us back in some way, resistance to greater use of experimentation in in the world of policy?
0: Cambridge Analytica was an outrageous data breach, and I think Facebook handled it very badly as they've acknowledged since then. But we don't need to be stealing data in order to be tweaking what works. I think it's perfectly ethical for me to be working on ways of better connecting with constituents trying to work out if I'm running one of those telephone town halls that I mentioned before, what's the best way of encouraging people to participate? We're in a world in which, as Tufts political scientist Etan Hirsch has pointed out, people are engaged in too much hobbyist politics and treating politics a bit like following a sports team rather than seeing it as fundamentally part of something in which they participate. So I've worked with researchers at Ohio State University and the University of Canberra to run deliberative democracy forums We did two of them last year, one online, one in person. And yes, people were randomised across those two groups because we're curious to know what form of engagement works best in order to get people involved in politics. I think that's solidly ethical. I'd be very happy to defend the way in which we did that in order to try and learn about the effectiveness of deliberative democracy, one of the tools that might help turn around this malaise that democracies have found themselves in.
1: I think you did mention an experiment in the book where people were encouraged to have conversations and it reduced political conflict.
0: Absolutely. There's good amounts of evidence that encouraging people to have those cross-party conversations can make a difference. I'm surprised as to how many people think they're engaging in politics when they're speaking only to people who voted the same way as they did at the last election. If you want to change the result in the next election, you've got to find someone who voted one way In the last election and persuade them to do something different. That involves having a conversation with someone who might have different views than you, and guess what? That's the best way in which we've always done politics.
1: Could you tell us a bit about the new book? Does it build on these concepts? It's about community building, and I'm sure it's probably filled with all sorts of good quality experimental insights. What works and what doesn't work when it comes to building strong communities?
0: So Reconnected is talking about the uh, decline in social capital in Australia. uh, We've seen a drop in joining, volunteering, voting, even in a country where voting is compulsory, the share of people not turning up has increased. We've seen a fall in the the average number of friends that Australians have and the average number of neighbours they have. So through a series of forums around Australia, we spoke to a couple of thousand community sector leaders and, and drew together their ideas. It's largely a set of stories, but where we can, we've certainly drawn on the evidence that is available to support better engagement. We talk, for example, about the role of social media and the experiments run by Jesse Shapiro and others of looking at what happened when you paid people to stay off Facebook for a few weeks. It turned out that they were less politically polarised and more engaged in their communities and less dependent on Facebook when they came back on afterwards. And that does suggest that many of us have become addicted to, let's face it, what are pretty addictive technologies, and that we might help produce a less polarised country if we spend a little bit less time online. That's influenced me and my parenting of three sons as they navigate the world of smartphones and social media.
1: Maybe we need drug courts like the ones you describe in the book to (laughs) wean people off of social media. Well, I look forward (laughs) to reading that book. So thank you very much for being here. I'll, I definitely will check out that book, and I think it probably has uh, relevance not just for Australia. I know it's available here in the US. But thank you so much for being here. Randomistas, definitely worth checking out. And of course, it cites so many different studies and so many different authors that if you read this, you'll, you'll be sure to have to read another dozen books to get the full picture. So thank you so much, Andrew.
0: Thanks, Greg. Really enjoyed the conversation.